If you're listening to Come and Take It, you must really like Texas. Hi, my name is Matthew Hinman, and when you're done increasing your Texas-sized IQ here with Mike, Scott, and Sean, come over to my show, Voices of Texas. Each week, I bring real Texans with real stories. These are the most interesting Texans you have never heard of. Voices of Texas is on iTunes and Stitcher and at VoicesOfTexas.com. Now, here's this week's Come and Take It. I, I don't know how factual that particular story is. Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. Texas native Scott Joplin was the defining force of ragtime. His hit song, The Maple Leaf Rag, would become the prototypical sound of that early form of jazz. The Entertainer, perhaps his best-known song, is what many people think of when they hear the word ragtime. His success is made more impressive by the difficulties Joplin faced as a black man in the southern United States. While he never achieved the fame and respect he desired during his lifetime, the music Joplin composed lived on, and he taught or collaborated with many stars of the ragtime movement. But first... Who's your favorite coach in Texas? Well, I'm always going to be a huge fan of Bum Phillips. Love you, Blue. Well, football season's over, so I'm going to go ahead and say five-time NBA champion, Greg Popovich. Go Spurs. Well, while you probably would expect me to say Tom Landry, actually my favorite Texas coach is my younger brother, Ryan. He is the defensive coordinator at Texas City. Go Stingarees. Go Stingarees. Scott Joplin was born in Linden, Texas in the late 1860s. Some sources show his birth date as November 24, 1868, but later research indicates sometime between June 1867 and January 1868. He was listed as 12 years old in the 1880 census. Scott was the second of six children born to Giles Joplin, an ex-slave from North Carolina, and a free-born black woman from Kentucky named Florence Givens. Soon after Joplin's birth, they moved to Texarkana, where Giles worked for the railroad and Florence was a cleaner. The Joplins were a musical family. Giles played violin for plantation parties back in North Carolina, while Florence sang and played the banjo. Scott received the basics of a musical education from his parents, and by the age of seven, he was allowed to play piano in at least one of the homes his mother cleaned while she worked. Giles abandoned his wife and children for another woman in the early 1880s. There's some speculation that Scott's mother insisted on his musical education, and this was a factor in his father's departure. In such harsh times, Giles believed his son should be doing more practical work than just making music. Despite the increased stress on the family, a serious and ambitious young Scott Joplin continued studying music and playing piano after his regular school activities. Several of the local teachers contributed to his education, but the most influential and longest-lasting mentor was a man named Julius Weiss. Weiss was a Jewish music professor who had immigrated to the United States from Germany. Weiss was working as a private tutor for the children of the wealthy lumberman Robert W. Rogers. When he heard Joplin play, Weiss was so impressed that he gave the young black man free lessons in piano, sight reading of music, and general musical principles that augmented the boy's natural talent. Weiss taught Scott from age 11 to 16, introducing him to both folk and classical music. One of the important concepts he taught Joplin was to view music as art as well as entertainment. Weiss placed special emphasis on European art forms, particularly opera. 
This would later influence Joplin's wish in life to be acknowledged as a classical composer. Knowing the dire strait that Joplin's family was in, Weiss helped Florence acquire a used piano for her son to practice. Joplin acknowledged the impact that Weiss had on his life, and later, at the height of his success, sent money to his mentor. At 16, Joplin performed with a vocal quartet and played piano in and around Texarkana. He also developed enough skill as a musician to teach guitar and mandolin. He temporarily moved to Sedalia, Missouri, possibly to live with relatives. While there, he attended Lincoln High School. By the late 1880s, Joplin was back in Texarkana and had enough success as a musician to feel comfortable quitting his job as a railroad laborer. Joplin soon left Texarkana to become a traveling musician. There's little information about Joplin from this time. In fact, just about the only record of his activity is from when he performed as a member of a group called the Texarkana Minstrels in July 1891. Ironically, this performance was to raise money for a monument to Confederate President Jefferson Davis. Joplin quickly found that opportunities for black musicians were rare in the South. The only steady work was at opposing ends of the moral spectrum, churches or brothels. He played jig piano in red light districts in Sedalia and St. Louis. In 1893, he was in Chicago for the World's Fair. There he formed his first band, though he played cornet, not piano. In addition to playing an instrument, he arranged music for the group. Although the involvement of black performers in the World's Fair itself was purposefully minimized by the white organizers, they played at the saloons, cafes, and brothels nearby. 27 million guests attended the World's Fair, and it had a heavy impact on American culture. No matter how much organizers might have wanted to downplay the presence of blacks in the fair, the music they played was extremely popular. The style of music that evolved was known as ragtime. Ragtime descended from the jig dances and marches that were played by African-American bands. It's a distinctly American style of music, a synthesis of African syncopation and European classical music. Ragtime would eventually evolve into jazz, the first and most unique American art form. Joplin picked up the rhythms and stylings of the music popular in the saloons where he played, but his classical education led him to apply formal technique to composing new music in that style. By 1897, ragtime was a fad in cities across America. Its popularity was best described by the St. Louis Dispatch as a veritable call of the wild which mightily stirred the pulses of city-bred people. The year after the World's Fair, Joplin moved back to Sedalia, Missouri. When he first arrived, he stayed at the family of Arthur Marshall. Marshall was only 13 at the time, but he became one of Joplin's students and a famous ragtime composer later in his own right. Although Sedalia would serve as a home base for Joplin, he made his living as a touring musician and wouldn't have a permanent residence there until 1904. Just as it's difficult to know exactly where he was living at the time, it's difficult to know exactly how he made his living. He was known to perform as a solo musician at the Black 400 Club and the Maple Leaf Club, the two major black clubs in Sedalia at the time. He also played for less than a year with the Queen City Coronet Band and his own six-piece dance orchestra. Also, he toured with his own singing group, the Texas Medley Quartet. The quartet would even travel to Syracuse, New York in 1895. Joplin's performances in New York were impressive enough that his compositions were first published by two New York businessmen in 1895. These songs were Please Say You Will and A Picture of Her Face. When he visited Temple, Texas the next year, three more of his pieces were published, including the Great Crush Collision March. This song was inspired by a publicity stunt masterminded by William George Crush. The Missouri-Kansas-Texas Railroad created a train wreck as a spectacle 
and due to a combination of free admission and reduced spares to get to the crash site, they managed to gather 40,000 people, possibly including Joplin himself. This made Crush, Texas the second largest city in the state on September 15, 1896. Things didn't go as planned and the boilers of both trains exploded, scattering debris over a wide area and killing two or three of the spectators, and injuring many others. Beyond the odd inspiration for the song, the Great Crush Collision March has been described as a special early essay in ragtime. Although he traveled extensively, Joplin was in Sedalia enough to teach many students piano. These included Arthur Marshall, Brian Campbell, and Scott Hayden. All of these men would go on to be prominent ragtime composers and frequent collaborators. Joplin was not only teaching, though, he was also continuing his education. He enrolled at George R. Smith College, a small black institution. He reportedly studied advanced harmony and composition, but in 1925 the school's records were destroyed in a fire. Joplin published his first piano rag, Original Rags, in 1897. This was the same year that the first ragtime music of any sort was published. Joplin was less than pleased that as a part of this publication, he had to share credit with a staff arranger named Charles N. Daniels. On the copyright, and in some advertisements, Daniels was even listed as composer. To make sure this didn't happen again when he published The Maple Leaf Rag in 1899, Joplin sought the assistance of a young lawyer from Sedalia named Robert Higdon. The song was undoubtedly known in Sedalia before that time. Brian Campbell claimed to have seen the manuscript in 1898. It's likely that the song was named after the Maple Leaf Club, where Joplin often played, especially since the inscription to the Maple Leaf Club was prominently displayed on some editions. There's no direct evidence to prove this, however, and there were other possible sources for the name. The most common story about the publication of this famous song is that after several unsuccessful approaches to publishers, Joplin signed a contract on August 10, 1899, with John Stilwell Stark. A retailer of musical instruments, Stark would go on to become Joplin's most important publisher. According to Joplin's contract, he would receive a 1% royalty on all sales of the rag, with a minimum sales price of 25 cents. A number of fairly wild claims have been made concerning the sales of the maple leaf rag. It's been said, for example, that Joplin was the first musician to sell a million copies of a piece of instrumental music. His first biographer, Rudy Blesch, claimed that during its first six months, the piece sold 75,000 copies and became, quote, the first great instrumental sheet music hit in America. This ignores the fact that there were some others, such as Camptown Races composer Stephen Foster, who had huge sheet music hits in the 1800s. More precise research later indicated far more moderate sales. The initial print run of 400 copies took a full year to sell, and under the terms of Joplin's contract would have given him an income of about $4, roughly the equivalent of $113 today. Sales grew steadily over the years, covering Joplin's expenses even if it didn't make him wealthy. By 1909, estimated sales would have given him an income equal to about $15,000 in today's dollars. Despite the modest success of the Maple Leaf Rag, it served as a model for hundreds of rags to come from other composers in following years. Joplin was soon described as the king of ragtime, and often applied this title to himself on the covers of his works. Even as Joplin's professional life was taking off, his personal life was in turmoil. Joplin married his wife, Belle, in 1899. She was the widow of student and collaborator Scott Hayden's older brother. They moved to St. Louis in early 1900 and had a daughter. Unfortunately, she would die only a few months after birth. There were other difficulties in the marriage, most notably that Bell had no interest in music. 
They eventually separated and finally divorced. In June of 1904, Joplin married Freddie Alexander, to whom he had dedicated the song The Chrysanthemum. That marriage ended in tragedy as Freddie died on September 10th that same year due to a complication from a cold. Only 10 weeks passed between their wedding and her death. Even through his personal tragedy, Joplin never stopped working, and during this period, he created some of his best-known works. These include the short theatrical work, The Ragtime Dance, which was performed just months after the Maple Leaf Rag was released, but wouldn't be published until 1902. Also released in this time period were the songs March Majestic, The Entertainer, and Bethina, a song written just after Freddie's death that has been described as, quote, an enchantingly beautiful piece that is among the greatest of ragtime waltzes. Although the Maple Leaf Rag may be considered the prototypical piano ragtime song, The Entertainer is probably the most recognizable by the average listener. It was one of the classics of ragtime during its heyday and went through a popular revival in the 1970s, thanks to its use as the theme for the 1973 Oscar-winning film The Sting. Marvin Hamlish's adaptation of the song for the film won an Academy Award, and it reached number three on the Billboard Hot 100. Even before that, it had enjoyed a revival in the early 70s as part of a release of songs by the classical label Nonesuch. This album sold 100,000 copies in its first year and eventually became the label's first million-selling record. Even with all this mainstream popularity, many people associate Joplin's most famous work with delicious frozen treats. Yes, The Entertainer is a commonly selected song played by ice cream trucks. Joplin didn't just write music. He also created a 30-person opera company to perform his works. He produced his first opera, A Guest of Honor, and took it on a national tour. Records of the tour have been lost or damaged, and it's uncertain how many productions were staged and whether it was an all-black or a racially mixed cast. Either in Springfield, Illinois, or Pittsburgh, Kansas, somebody involved with the company stole the box office receipts. This theft meant he couldn't pay for the cast, crew, or even a hotel to stay in. It's believed that the score for a guest of honor was lost and perhaps destroyed after it was confiscated due to a non-payment of the boarding house bill. Contemporary articles give an indication of the subject. It was about educator and civil rights activist Booker T. Washington's famous dinner with President Roosevelt at the White House in 1901. This historic event was understandably popular with African Americans, uh, though somewhat polarizing to the white population at the time. Despite this setback, Joplin still wanted to create an opera and believed the best place to find a producer was in New York City. He moved there in 1907. There he met Lottie Stokes and married her in 1909. He hadn't found a publisher by 1911, so he undertook the financial burden of publishing this opera, Tremonitia, in a piano-vocal format. That didn't bring him the success he craved, and in 1915, as a last-ditch effort to see the piece performed, he invited a small audience to hear the opera at a rehearsal hall in Harlem. Joplin's desperation to see the piece performed was likely not driven only by professional reasons. The work was a very personal tribute to two of the women he loved most. The heroine of the opera obtains her education through her parents' labors in a white-owned home just as he did thanks to the efforts of his mother. The story takes place in September 1884, the month and year of Freddie's birth. Poorly staged and with only Joplin on piano rather than a full orchestra, the performance was considered a miserable failure. The public was not ready for what they considered crude black musical forms, which were so different from the European grand opera of the time. Such criticisms were no doubt hurtful to Joplin, not only because he wanted to be considered a serious classical composer, but obviously also due to the subject matter of the opera. 
The audience, who included several potential backers, was indifferent to the performance and they walked out. For both personal and professional reasons, this setback was devastating to Joplin. And after this single disastrous performance, he suffered a complete breakdown. He was bankrupt, discouraged, and just worn out. Few American artists of his generation faced such obstacles. Trimonisha went unnoticed and unreviewed, no doubt because Joplin had abandoned commercial music in favor of music for the sake of art, a field closed to black Americans at this time. No white reviewer would take the piece seriously. Joplin was not completely finished professionally, and in 1914, he and Lottie published his Magnetic Rag as the Scott Joplin Music Company, which he had formed in December 1913. Biographer Vera Brodsky-Lawrence speculates that Scott was aware of failing health and was, quote, consciously racing against time. He'd contracted tertiary syphilis some years before, and his body and mind were deteriorating rapidly. In the sleeve notes she wrote for the 1992 Deutsch Grammophon release of Trimonitia, Lawrence notes that he, quote, plunged feverishly into the task of orchestrating his opera day and night, with his friend Sam Patterson standing by to copy out the parts page by page as each page of the full score was completed. But it would not be until the 1970s that the opera actually received a full theatrical staging. In 1916, Joplin was descending into syphilis-induced madness. His condition deteriorated quickly, and in January 1917, he was admitted to the mental institution at Manhattan State Hospital. He lived there less than three months, dying on April 1st of syphilitic dementia at age 49. Joplin was buried in a pauper's grave at St. Michael's Cemetery in East Elmhurst. His resting place went unmarked for 57 years until 1974. Scott Joplin's influence on American music and culture was enormous. Within a few years of his death, ragtime music would give way to swing and jazz, and it would influence the development of blues. Joplin provided a model for the application of a classical music education and sensibilities to popular music. Those young musicians he taught and collaborated with would be at the forefront of that evolution. His influence was felt by composers as widely different as Igor Stravinsky, Claude Debussy, and George Gershwin. And though he never saw the success that he wanted in life, the influence of this poor kid from Texas was, and still remains, profound. The one thing that jumped out at me reading about that was, um, you know, him being on his deathbed, frantically trying to get his last notes down on the page, reminds me very much of Mozart. the movie Amadeus. Yeah. <laughs> Mozart. And yeah. And I, I don't know how factual that particular story well, is. I think it's it's kind of cool, though, like this, when you, the music of Scott Joplin, the idea of ragtime, it's, it's such a weird little blip in terms of, of, popularity of mm-hmm. it, when it, it arose it came and then it went away in the face of jazz and it, it's a very it's very much associated with a specific time in america yes. yeah. but it, it, in terms of musicality it is a foundational piece of uh, a foundational style jazz would not have evolved the whole thing of jazz was that it then it broke away from this form that was a breakaway itself from the marches and the and the yeah. the folk music of Europe and of America. I didn't know that one of the biggest influences for ragtime itself was the the marches of John Philip Sousa, and so this style was a hybrid style of syncopated rhythms and music from the, the heritage of these of African Americans at the time with the popular music, which was marches and waltzes and things like that. But it's a foundational piece for jazz as the jazz musicians and the improv style broke away from that. 
So I think it's a, it is a very important transitional time, but I agree with you, Mike, that it is very much associated with a particular time in America. Well, I think that the, the, the resurgence of it came with the sting, which again is very period oriented piece. So it's, it's just, it, you look at that and you're like, okay, I, if, if I hear the entertainer, you know, I don't see like people on surfboards. Yeah, you know, or it's it's not. It, you go okay. I, I very specific picture in my mind of what this what's going on with this music. Yeah, I picture straw boater hats and striped suits. Yes, exactly. And so, for those who are not familiar with what ragtime is, we're going to play a little clip of the Entertainer, which is his most famous piece. And the entertainer, I'll tell my own little story about this. When I was a child, uh, my parents put me in piano lessons, and I enjoyed it at the time, but my dad's stated goal for me was to, at some point, play the entertainer for him. Oh, hang on. Your mom emailed me a tape. They made a recording of you playing. No, they didn't do that. (laughs) Yeah. That would be horrible. As I was going to say, I wasn't in piano lessons long enough to actually be able to play the entertainer. (laughs) Oh, darn. That would have been a great great cat. But... uh, yeah, so I mean, it was—it's a song that you you automatically hear. I mean, he knew it from the Sting, I'm pretty sure. Right. But because um, he's not that old, but uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's just one of those songs that you hear and yeah. you're like, oh yeah, I know that song. Yeah. And you know, and it's you just it's built in. I mean, you somehow you just know it. Well, I have a record actually of James Levine, who was a classical pianist of the 1970s, playing. The Songs of Scott Joplin. And I actually listened to this with my wife and with the kids, and we listened to it. The interesting thing is that you think of that, The Entertainer or of Maple Leaf Rag, which has a pretty distinctive tune to it as well. You th- I think of player pianos. Like, that's the t- the type of well, music. Well, that was the technology of the time. Right. And in fact, there's a recording, if you, on YouTube, you can find it, they found reels uh, because they would have recorder pianos, and you'd load blank paper in it, and then you'd sit down, you start, you start the the motor, and mm-hmm. you start playing, and then it would record all of the piano keyboard work in, into the reels, and then you take the reels out, mm-hmm. and they'd make copies of them and send them out. Yeah, and so it was actually a per- there's a performance by Joplin. Of course, it's later in his life, so you can mm-hmm. hear a few errors, but uh, Ian, you know, syphilis. Yeah. Well, so I think, yeah, I think of player pianos and I think of the music for a silent movie. Those are the kind of Mm. things I associate with that sound. And it's that jaunty, up tempo, very fast uh, sound of ragtime that I associate. The, The interesting thing about the liner notes of this record is that Levine and the producer of this record talk about that Joplin's notes on his music, on his on his sheet music, said, don't play this fast. Don't play these fast. And they said, just like any popular music form, the biggest problem is imitation and it's dilution. And so people played it fast and it, and it became old hat and uh, it, it became watered down in, in widespread popularity. But his style himself is very avant-garde and changing as you get through the years of him writing music. And Say so, Johnny. yeah. <laughs> Say Johnny, have you 
Which way to the local gym, gym joint? Which right. way to the local gym joint? Right, Johnny? but if you but if you listen to the music, you think, oh, this is all up tempo, very happy, jaunty stuff. But then some of the later songs, like the chrysanthemum, as the as you get through the different parts of the music, it it goes into lower keys and it gets melancholy. And I think that's that's really his growth as, as an artist. And then you get into Tremonitia. And I've heard a lot about Tremonitia because, like you said in the in your part, the lady did they did a re-release uh, in the early two thousands of this, and uh, and and a staging of it, and that really would be considered, um, like modern art or like avant-garde uh, opera. It was not the classical style of opera, and that's what people wanted. But right. that's a big part of why it failed. Yeah, and I think that's one of the the great things about Joplin and his you know, early ragtime stuff is it's like I said, it's very much a melding of musical styles. Mm-hmm. He took the, the music that he had learned from his mother and his father, the, the entertaining popular music that you just play, you go, you play at the brothel or the saloon for people to dance to or, or at the church, right? Or the church or, or just, you know, it took music that was entertainment and then applied the classical music, um, theory that he learned from vice and applied that to, the music he was learning and came up with a new style that was very, had a, a lot more rigid like rules to it, but it still had kind of the feel and loose flavor of the the popular stuff. An interesting point you made there, Scott, about the idea of structure is, you know, ragtime has a fixed structure in terms of how um, it's arranged. There's specific sections and pieces that are sort of played, repeated. You go to this other section, you play, repeat it, and so on and so forth. So there is like a, you know, much like haiku or other things, you know, it's a simple way to think of it is there's a structure that you have to have so many syllables and pieces, but within that framework, the music it creates is very inner in, innovative and good. It's entertaining and it, intricate. Yeah. It's intricate. I think the thing that makes Joplin different from someone who's just cranking out popular music or something, and he's just one of those people that's just... I think just is a touched kind of person. They just have a special gift. And the thing that he he had this musical talent, he had this classical background, he had this understanding of I have to be making entertainment, but he also had, he was the collection of, of an interesting life. That youth in Texas, the hardship of his life, all of those pieces came together and gave him a very specific point of view. And I think what makes a really good artist into a great artist and a timeless artist is he had, you know, even though there's no lyrics to these songs that we sort of know, and there's a point of view there and he Mm -hmm. has something he's saying with these, with these songs and music. And even though it's not obvious, the effort and the emotion is in what he writes that makes it a timeless piece. And that's why I think we see certain things of art that are just timeless. Great Crush Collision March, you know, ha- has that silent movie feel to it, and you can kind of picture that over footage of people distraught over a giant train collision. But it, it also has, you can really hear in that one, you can hear the John Philip Sousa influence on there. I mean, of course, it's a march, so if it's a march, it's bound to sound like Sousa. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, I, I, wanna, I have seen film of the Crush Collision, and I want to say, now that I've heard that, I want to say that's the music I've heard over that film. I would like. Here's a question about Scott Joplin. 
he was able to to really traverse a lot of worlds. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. Like he was he was very poor, but he was able to ascend to you know this music training. He played piano in these in these rich people's houses. He was able to go between New York and Texas. He was able to go between brothel and church. He was able to go between opera house and Harlem nightclub. And all in all of that while, you know, there's all these different worlds, and it's in such a specific period in America. And But I do like the idea that no matter what he did, he always did have a Texas roots because he had his Texas minstrels and his Texas quartet. And, he, you know, there's... It's kind of interesting. It's like, wow, that that's kind of cool that you still have that association there with him. And, you know, I think, to me, his story most reminds me of the Bessie Coleman story in that she also uh, was able to go through to a lot of different worlds and traverse a lot of different worlds in that period of time. And But like Bessie Coleman, he was limited in a lot of ways by racial attitudes at the time. Uh, that he was he was held back by those things. I think that, like Bessie Coleman, he was very popular in a per- per- particular parameter, like you said, in a particular window, but he died before his time. He died not really truly appreciated for what he had truly done. And not appreciated was, for 50 years, really. Right. Yeah, so for 50 years, he wasn't appreciated and acknowledged outside of a very small circle of people, unlike Bessie Coleman, who influenced other other African-American pilots after her, but it was a very small population of people that really knew that that story and who that person was. And Scott Joplin was very similar. So, but like you said, Bessie Coleman always had that, that undercurrent of, I came from Texas and it was part of her background. Scott Joplin had that, Texas was part of the background and that, that baseline for him. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you. So like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstable.com and leave some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. Why not follow us too? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with two N's. And I'm Scotticus. We'd like to thank our good friend James Abendroth for helping us research and write today's episode. You can find him on Twitter at Blackguard Press and find his fiction work at blackguardpress.com. So if you like this show, tell your friends. Leave a review on iTunes. These are the things that help us out. And if you'd like to support the show, why not become a patron at patreon.com slash texaspodcast. We hope you'll join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas, Texas wants you anyway. anyway.